We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. You're listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast, where today we have Dr. Joe Boot. Dr. Boot, are you an Alan Jackson guy or more of a Billy Bragg sort of vibe? (laughs) If I knew who either of those people were, I could tell you. Okay, Alan Jackson's country guy and Billy Bragg is like folk country from the UK. And the reason I ask is because I I heard that you guys might be open up some sort of satellite campus or something in Nashville for the Ezra Institute. I see. Well, I I apologize for my ignorance of the country music industry. Um, we do, we have just opened a um, uh, a U.S. office actually of the Ezra Institute in Tennessee, um, and uh, my colleague um, is uh, is down there now in the Chattanooga area. So uh, Ezra was founded in two thousand and nine in in Canada, and uh, we so we have an office in Ontario. And we've just opened one of the places we've just opened an office is in the United States. Yeah. Okay, right on. So what kind what kind of music are you then? If not country or like indie Americana, what kind what's your jam? Well, I'm actually I'm actually pretty eclectic. I mean, I am very much a, a classical music boff. Uh, my my eldest daughter is at the Royal College of Music in London studying opera. Uh, uh, and uh, she's a she's a, a classical singer, but um, I actually began uh, my ministry many years ago in a um, in a sort of progressive rock band, uh, the Boot Brothers, we were called, and uh, we um, we toured professionally for a couple of years um, in uh, in the United Kingdom. So believe it or not, that's so I, I'm fairly eclectic. I mean, people like. Um, uh jonathan butler in in the sort of uh, jazz area and then uh, a favorite artist for me would be sting um the the british artist who's himself very very eclectic so uh in terms of popular music that he would be my uh, my favorite artist but um i'm fairly eclectic but i do have a strong leaning towards the classical music world i think in one of johnny cash's later albums he did a sting sting salt song called I Hung My Head, which is That's like right. I, I didn't know that was a sting song. That's a full-on country ballad. Absolutely. Uh, is it so this did Sting actually record that song too? Like, can I hear that in Sting? World oh yes. Sting? Oh yeah. Yeah. I Does think that was on um, I think that was on his album, if memory serves, I think that was on his album Mercury Falling. Okay. Um and uh yeah, it's it's got a country sound to it when Sting records it. Okay, we're gonna link that link that jam, and I'm gonna link some Alan Jackson in the show notes. You you bet. I'm sure you don't come back and listen, but you at least got to serve. Well, like give me I uh, I welcome the education into Alan Jackson. <laughs> All and, right. So, uh, yeah, I actually have a little bit of. Um, I, I I'm not entirely sure what the uh, name of the various artists are, but I actually have a little bit of Hawaiian music in my uh, portfolio too, uh, the Hawaiian guitar. I mean, some years back I was in Hawaii, I was staying on Lanai Island. Ooh. And um, uh, and then there was a couple of films. I think it was one with George Clooney. Oh, um, yeah. was, yes. And I really enjoyed some of the music in there. So I, uh, I ended up downloading some Hawaiian tunes, which I very much enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So we rent out cars and whenever I like on a Turo, and so whenever the guests pick up the car, I make sure I turn it on to like 
that sort of slack key guitar. But there's yeah. a guy named, oh, actually I can't even say his name. It's so Hawaiian and I'm such a howly. But the song's called Smoking All Day Long. But it's right. about, he says, smoke meat, not drugs. And it's the best song in the world about all these different ways him and all the Hawaiian brothers are smoking meat. You please fight. All right, Alan Jackson and smoking all day long. I'm going to link it. Okay. So Dr. Joe Boots, founder and president of the Ezra Institute for Con Contemporary Christianity. Um, one, like, for example, one of the initiatives they have is the H. Evan Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership. So that's where for 10 days at a time, they help remove veils and offer insight into a distinctly biblical world and life view. Ready for this line? This is from their site. Capable of vindicating the Christian philosophy of life in every sphere. Oh, I love that. Um, and if you haven't already deduced, the Ezra Institute and Jobu are one of the last holdouts who, of the Kuyperian tradition who haven't bent the knee to Bart. No, I'm just, Bart. I'm just joking. Bart's cool, but he, he brought the demise. So, anyways, we there's not many there's not many institutions out there. It's, it's utterly depressing. So, thank you for actually being a Kuyperian. I throw up in my mouth when I read most of the Kuyperians. I mean, I'm a Kuyperian, and I yeah. I'm just like, oh, it's like a fit. I get so mad. I get so offended. I like. Please don't even. Well, they, have, they really have no right to. Most of them have no right to use the term, uh, and that's the that's the that's the sad thing. It really but, is uh, tragic how so utterly butchered the Kuyperian uh, worldview. I mean, I'll ask you as a, this will be a side note question. I mean, I think it was, I think it was in the 30s, 40s, at the free at free university when. Bart sort of crept in and I think that was the beginning of the end I think there's some great stuff from Bart but I think with Burkauer and and event and Burkauer's great stuff but that was the that was the beginning of the end and then um you know and I still haven't figured out the beginning and the end here in America it might have been after World War II because they translated Bart not Bavink there was huh. in Canada as you well know um Skilder kept people kept them kept them grounded kept them you know cool and collective for a, while. for a while but now it's oh man it's so depressing but having said that i've noticed something and i think you're a, a, a doy bird kind of guy but mm -hmm. why 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 is it that so many neo-calvinists who who go doy verdians who go the way of politics and you're a sort of politics guy how how do they end up full-on liberals i mean like the the ICS and all this stuff. I, I don't yeah. can't even see how that could happen. Do you have any? Have you ever had any? Have you ever wondered that? <laughs> I have. Fr I have. Fr I have frequently, and because uh, I'm in touch with sort of the the previous generation of of sort of last holdouts. Yes, uh, men men like Danny Strauss and um, Willem Auenail. Yeah. Um, yeah, H. Evan Runner, um, and you mentioned that one of our programs is named after H. Evan Runner, um, was sort of instrumental in getting the Institute for Christian Studies in Canada um, launched and off the ground. And you can see in his writing by the 1980s, he's mid to late 80s, he's despairing yeah. of what's going on there. Um, and I think that had to do with, um, you know, the people that got a hold of the reins at that institution. And really now it's pretty much um, dead in the water. Um, 
as always happens with anything that goes liberal. And as you look back over the centuries, whether we're looking at Methodism, uh, you know, denominationally or uh, Presbyterianism in Canada, um, you know, Reformed Anglicanism, even in, uh, in, in places like Canada and the United States, um, no church or institution or Christian institution is immune from, from drifting when things go wrong at the foundation. And um, now I have often wondered how on earth, I mean, am I reading the same Doivert? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> am I reading the same Kuiper to these people? I cannot, uh, um, for the life of me, see how from Doivert they could get there. Now, I think uh, one clue may be in, in certain uh, misunderstandings of Doivert or some sort of uh, neo um yeah. trickery, where there's an attempt to sort of say, well, um, philosophy uh, has a kind of independence because, of course, Doivert was in a in a, a struggle with some of the, the free university scholastics, um, and uh, was was challenging them about the whole notion of theology as queen of the sciences, as though uh, theology itself uh, doesn't um, uh, the theologian doesn't bring to the table certain philosophical assumptions, and so I think some of these Doiverdians. Um, began to unhook, disconnect themselves from the plain teaching of scripture, yeah. which Doivert certainly did not. Um, as, as a confessional reformed man, um, and uh, they they unhook themselves from scripture, and they start thinking that um, uh, well, Doivert's insights a little more than a than a, a handy tool that one can uh, yeah. have have move in any given direction. And my experience of the sort of neo-Kyperian, neo-Doiverdians in Canada, uh, such as it was, was that um, with a few exceptions, like our Walters, um, was that uh, they just became radical political leftists um, and, and progressives uh, who, you know, aban abandoned really any even sense of sphere sovereignty itself. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. how can you be a Kyperian or Doiverdian when you don't even accept the delimited role of the state, because of course these progressives, um, they want state intervention and state control of pretty much everything, which would have been an absolute anathema to Kuiper and an anathema to uh, Doiverd, whose writings were primarily directed against the dangers of a totalitarian statism when it came to his writings about politics. So, uh, and of course that theme um, that he so brilliantly, I think, um, exegeted of uh, of the totalitarian drift of Western political life is picked up by Francis Schaeffer and uh, men like R.J. Rushduni, who interestingly enough wrote a number of forewords uh, to the early English translations of, of Doiverd's work as they were being introduced to to, to, to an English um, uh, readership. So, um, Jason, I wish I had some ans answers for you. Um, but the, I liked what you said about those who have not bowed the knee to Bart, because I do think that is a that's a serious, serious problem. The neo-orthodoxy creeping in there. Um, so gross. I, I was man, I was part of this like Facebook neo-Calvinist page. And I remember rejoicing when um, Calvin, um, like, you know, in one of their assemblies where they said, like, you know, we're, we're they've defined, you know marriage between one man and woman and 
I was, I wrote there and so many people upbraided me. Like people, I, I, I don't even know if I should name their names, but it's like people you and I both know and we read like, they're like the Kyperian voices. And I'm like, what, what has, like, I knew that has happened, but it's like, when you see it real, you could assume what those people are thinking, but when it hit the road, it's so gross. And then we both know, I know you guys mentioned before, but Doiver, like, you know, uh, tr from Ruben Alvarado, I think he translated it, mentioned something about, you know, forced vaccines, Kuiper. Kuiper even talked about, I think, chick That's uh, right. chicken pox. He talked about like, and he says, oh yes, this is great. The science here that this exists is awesome. Assuming it worked, right? Um, yeah. For cowpox. He's like, but it's not the, it's not the freaking role of gut. Like, it's like common That's sense right. 101, right? And then, and then we've got Kuiper, yeah. I think in lectures and somewhere else, he's like, Kuiper and Doiverd. Uh, in fact, during the pandemic, I quoted Doiverd several times on on the whole idea of mandatory vaccination. Um, same with Kuiper. These men were absolutely clear on that issue yeah. um, that it was completely unacceptable. Uh, so, no, these these people, Jason, I, I just really don't feel they have any right to you call yourself something else. But don't don't stain the name of these uh, these great uh, Christian thinkers by with the exactly. butchery. I wrote, I know there exists out there like a, a, a chart like neo-Calvinism versus like neo-Puritanism. And I've been revamping one to adding liberal neo-Calvinism so people could, because yes. if you ask most people, what's neo-Calvinism? They're like, oh, that's that super whack liberal mu movement. You're like, oh, Kuiper's so sad about this, you know? I mean, anyways, yeah. Um, yeah. okay, one last thing on this, then I'll move on. I'm, you know, in... Kuiper in the lectures in Calvinism and something else, he literally said, modernity will not be pleased until it's made a man, a woman, and it's made like up, down. Woman, I mean, yeah. Such a, such a, I don't even know if he was actually thinking that it's so audacious, but like, it's, it's so far that that's actually true. And it's disgusting. Okay. So like I said, I actually Dr. cite Dr. that passage. Um, I have a PowerPoint slide. I cite that passage in one of my uh, regular lectures. So again, I'm very interested you mentioned that um, on thinking Christianly, um, where I actually cite uh, Kuiper's prophecy, effectively a prophecy yeah. over 100 years ago about where modernity is headed. Yeah, incredible prescience that. So good. So Dr. Boot, like I said, they run the, the uh, Ezra Institute. They also got a podcast there, drops weekly. I listen to every single episode. Bunch of bunch of cheeky cats run that thing. I love it. There's an episode about a year ago that changed, literally changed my life. I felt like I had the veil removed, and it was called Climate, COVID, CRT, and the New Counter-Reformation. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Actually, I don't think it was a podcast. I think it was a lecture you gave. I forget, but it it just, I was like, oh man. And then and the, the book, which we'll talk about today, sort of hits that. Um, Dr. Boot also has penned you know, a dozen books, name a few. One is For the Hope That Is In You, Christian Apologetics and the Biblical Story of Reality. Next one is For Mission, The Need for Scriptural Cultural Theology. And last one we're going to mention is um, most recently in the book we're discussed today, Ruler of Kings Toward a Christian Vision of Government. Um, yeah, and then like, like we mentioned, they, they're opening satellite um, branches or whatever in Nashville, and they're in the UK um, and Canada, and they even have an 
an app in the works that by the way is not dependent upon any of the uh the pagan gatekeepers so well done there um the book's called ruler of kings toward a christian vision of government but dr boot is there such a thing as a christian view of government are we supposed to like separate church and state yeah so um thank thanks for mentioning um uh, the work of the institute uh, jason um yeah, we have a, an office in the UK as well, which I didn't mention earlier. That's where I am. I'm based now back in, in the UK. And um, we're providing these various resources, the podcast for cultural reformation. We've got this um, online portal uh, coming, coming soon, which we're, which we're excited about. And there'll be an app for that. And then my major um, sort of work um, from a few years ago was the mission of God. And um, which I sort of set out a, a vision of, of, of a Christian vision of culture. And with Ruler of Kings, I wanted to focus in on the issue of um, government, of, of political life. And uh, you rightly immediately raise a question that I have to deal with uh, in the book, um, which, you know, is there such a thing as a distinctly Christian view of government, after all, isn't uh, the area of human politics um, basically neutral? Um, isn't that just uh, part of the world of nature? Um, and by bringing in, um, uh, isn't that just part of the secular world of nature and, and uh, the th things that man's reason can handle and deal with without revelation? Why would we need grace, um, the, the, the revelation of scripture, the lordship of Jesus, why would that have any bearing on political life? And of course, that comes to the heart straight away of one of the key problems that we're facing today is this uh, dualism, this sort of double-decker bus uh, sort of view of reality, um, which I think it was Francis Schaeffer, actually, who used that illustration first of, um, you know, the, the in London, England, most people would be familiar with the iconic image of a two-level two bus, the lower deck and an upper deck. And uh, the Christian, because of the inheritance from the Western tradition through Aristotle and then uh, Thomas Aquinas, there's been this tendency to think of, you know, uh, two levels of reality, a world of nature, of reason, uh, where education and law and politics and culture and all those things happen. And that's all based on uh, man's natural reasoning ability, it's neutral, and, and in the modern world, we say secular. And then you have this upper story, which is the spiritual area. And that's where the church is, and that's where Bible study and going to church and prayer and your spiritual disciplines are. And that's what's really, really important. And the stuff on the lower deck's just not that important. Um, of course, the difficulty is that the driver uh, of the bus is um, on the lower deck. Yeah. And, and then steers, radically steers the direction of culture. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, we have this ecclesiasticizing of the faith. We have kind of imprisoned the Bible and the Christian faith in the life of the Church Institute. So when you talk about and you think, well, a book on a Christian vision of government, what do you mean? Uh, surely the, 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 um, the only thing we, that really matters is the life of the church and doing some evangelism so that we can get people into heaven. But no, there really is a... Christian view of government, because scripture says that Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth in Revelation 1.5. Um, Psalm 2 uh, makes clear that uh, he rules the nations with a rod of iron, and he and God warns all the judges and princes of the earth to pay homage 
to the sun. Psalm 110 makes crystal clear the messianic kingship um, in history of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we have to you know, grapple with what the Bible says. And it says of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And the we're coming up to Christmas soon. The Magnificat talks about the, the reality of Christ's birth being for the, the rising and fall of many and uh, him putting down kings. And this, this is the reality of, of history. And, uh, and, it, it, and it behooves the Christian to uh, wrestle again in a time of tremendous apostasy in the church and the steady decline of our civilization uh, to think through what is there a truly Christian view of human government? And but, there absolutely but, is. We can give some examples if we want. I mean, is there, isn't Jesus, I mean, let's be honest. He was a patchouli wearing hemp slippered hippie. He didn't care. He was like, I just want to float on a boat and teach. And he taught about heaven, man. He taught about the kingdom. The kingdom was surely heaven, right? Like off this disembodied place. So is Jesus interested in, in politics? Yeah. Yeah, he certainly is. He, he said to Pontius Pilate, uh, when Pilate recognized, um, Jesus said to him, you say, I am a king. Um, he said, my kingdom is not from this world. And people misunderstand that as though Jesus was saying his kingdom was not in this world. But actually, the whole of the, the New Testament tells us that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, uh, the evangel, the good news that um, Christ is king. His kingdom is being established and repentance and faith is required uh, to enter it. Um, and so Jesus was not saying to 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 Pilate, uh, my kingdom is not here. He was saying that the way it comes about, it, the power and authority of my kingdom is not like the kingdom that you represent, Pilate, which is the power of the human sword, the conquest of men by subjugating other men. No, the king, this kingdom is from heaven. That is, it's from God himself. It's the power of God manifest in history. And stood in front of Pilate was the king of kings and the lord of all lords. And um, because he is the universal king of the nations and of all men and nations, and of course, the Apostle Paul tells us that in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus refused uh, to allow the people, the, the Jewish people, to make him king um, during his earthly ministry. It's not, uh, it's not men that crown Christ king. Uh, it is God himself who's, yeah. who has set his king on Zion, his holy mountain, as Psalm 2 very clearly teaches so um the, the the image of jesus as you say this francis of Assisi kind of peace love lentil soup driving a camper van if he was around today uh image of 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 gentle jesus meek and mild um who wants nothing to do with culture and politics and kings and governors um is not the jesus of the bible it's not the christ of scripture not not the, not the christ of of the word of God, certainly not the Christ of biblical prophecy, um, who is, uh, who is the, 
the master, the king, the lord, the great shepherd, the pot- the only potentate. I mean, you pick your term. Um, he is all of those things, and he sits today as a man reigning, seated at the right hand of all power and authority, where Hebrews tells us he's bringing all things into subjection. And um, for, for those who maybe were attentive in the last few months to European politics and the death of Queen Elizabeth II, um, you would have seen in that funeral <clears throat> very clear uh, reference to uh, uh, and, and a visual picture of the reality of the Western idea of monarchy surrendered and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and his rule, his kingship, um, that all monarchies, all kings, all presidents are under the lordship of Christ. And the president of the United States takes his oath of office on the Bible used to be on an open Bible to Deuteronomy 27, 28, invoking the blessings and cursings of God upon the nation. But Christ is uh, very much into, he is not disconnected from history or uh, living, operating in some ethereal, ephemeral realm that has no interest in the course of human history. No, we're living right now, today, in the grip and in the midst of Christ's judgment in history, his righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. <laughs> and um, he is manifesting his justice and his righteousness today in our nations um, right across the world. But we see it so clearly in the West because of our rebellion and apostasy. Um, we are, we've invited God's judgment upon ourselves. And Christ is uh, ruling and reigning um, as the scripture declares he is. Can you... Can you give a like co- contrast what um, what it looks like when Jesus the Lord is the Lord over government and and surely it's um, the, the great neutral government that we have in America right like where everyone's got equal say and it's just this we all come empty-handed and whatever the masses want that's isn't that the logical kind and natural default disposition it does seem to be the default position of most christians today that somehow progressive secular liberal democracy um is the christian view um but it of course is not uh that doesn't mean that the christian view does not involve the the responsibility of um those in government to uh their people or part or participation or consent of the governed uh, in their government, um, or even the process of um, democracy uh, in electing leaders. The um, the reality is when we talk about society being democratic, society is not democratic. Uh, the, the way we elect our leaders is supposed to be democratic in the West. Um, because it's an issue of a vote. But society as a whole, from a Christian standpoint, is not a democracy. God does not hold a referendum or an election on the role of his son. Uh, There is no election and there is no referendum. And and Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and all of Scripture, Book of Revelation, don't teach that God is waiting to be elected, um, to have his son elected as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So... Um, from a Christian standpoint, lordship and kingship is already settled. Um, and the 
society itself, and so so in that sense, God's order is not uh, democratic. You know, the government of the of of God's sovereignty, God's absolute sovereignty, is not a matter of human democracy. Uh, and then, second of all, much of society is not uh, that God has established in terms of His order is not democratic either. Uh, the church is not a democracy. Uh, Christ is head of His church. Um, and um, the church doesn't vote on which doctrines are to be believed. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't vote on uh, whether Christ is the Son of God who was raised from the dead. Um, it, it, it doesn't vote on the the qualifications for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, um, and it doesn't even vote uh, on its in terms of local governance, in terms of um, when we've got elders in the life of the church uh, uh, that uh, we just take elections on when church discipline should be exercised and on whom. Um, the family is not a democracy. Parents don't sit down with their children and say, um, okay, so uh, we, these are our proposed rules. Who, who votes yay or nay for this rule or that rule? So, and these are, you know, where you work, most people's workplace, their vocations, business is not a democracy. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't um, have uh, elections again on what we're going to get paid at work. Um, so society is not uh, de democratic. When we talk about democracy, what we mean is it's how our rulers are elected. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing anti-Christian about that. Um, because a Christian people will, of course, elect those with um, uh, Christian scriptural values. But a Christian order then would look like a, a nation that recognized the authority of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would recognize God, his sovereignty, and the, and the lordship of Christ over it. That would mean um, it would recognize, this does not mean, by the way, uh, uh, a federally established church or the necessity of church establishment. Um, in, in political life, the confession of the Christian confession in political life is a political confession, not an ecclesiastical confession. So the state does not need to be Baptist or Pentecostal or, um, or Anglican or a Presbyterian to be Christian. It doesn't need because Christians of all of those stripes might participate in Christian government. Mm -hmm. um, but it would recognize in the Constitution God's authority the lordship of Christ, the authority of God's word, and it would allow God's word to speak to and have bearing on the national life of the people. It would include prayers in the parliament and in the Senate, in Congress. It would, it would have um, uh, anthems that recognize God's authority. It would be in dialogue with biblical law uh, in the legislature. It would frequently invite the church uh, to Christians, um, uh, Christian leaders within the churches to guard, to advise, to propose, not impose, but propose um, uh, a, a, a proper understanding of the word of God in a given issue. And it would be a country which <clears throat> respected the rule of law, uh, the same rule for the stranger, the alien and the resident, uh, which is where we get the idea of rule of law, by the way, from Leviticus, from Exodus, from, from the older uh, covenant. Um, and uh, it would be uh, a nation that would be concerned with uh, godly civil order, where the state was limited to being a ministry of justice, not a ministry of health, a ministry of education, a ministry of media, a ministry of this, a ministry of absolutely everything, which the modern state has become today.
just even just hearing that I, I get excited I'm like wow that, that sounds so nice but we definitely 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 do not have that and then I want to drill some down some more on some of the things you said but first can you touch on you talk about you say like the church as a form of government the family as a form of government it's not like the government which that's a simple thing that it's a helpful grid for me to view. Can you kind of share that with the listeners? Yeah, so very simply, that's the principle of, of sphere sovereignty. Um, the principle of sphere sovereignty is a biblical principle. It was probably first called sphere sovereignty by uh, Abraham Kuyper, possibly Groen van Prinsterer just before him. Um, so that was the name it's been given. Uh, it's, in a bit, it's a bit cumbersome in the translation into English, but it just means spheres of authority, spheres jurisdiction uh, that are subject to the Lordship of Christ. So in the Bible, we recognize that the, the family uh, is an order of government. Um, uh, the, and, and of course, the Apostle Paul reiterates the nature of the family, Ephesians 5, for example, um, and teaches what the family should look like, obligations of a husband to wife, wife to husband, children to parents, um, and um, honor, respect, obedience, and so forth, all part of that. So you see there is an order, there is a structure, there is a sphere of authority for the family. There's a sphere and structure of authority for the church. Um, we see that in the, uh, uh, the Older Testament as well as the New, in the Congregation of Israel, as well as in the Newer uh, Testament, where you see the appointment of leaders and elders. We're taught to submit to those uh, in authority over us in the life of the church who serve well, to give uh, double honor to those who labor in the word and so on and so forth. So there you have another sphere of authority, another form of government. The church has um, a power of discipline too. the family has the right and authority to discipline its children. And the church has the authority to excommunicate, to exercise church discipline. And then, of course, there is the state that we see in the Bible distinct from the church and the congregation of Israel. So we see right from the institution of, of monarchy, for example, that kings are not permitted to function as priests. Um, uh, Saul uh, lost his kingdom for presumption to act as a priest in the place of Samuel. And so we see the, the ecclesiastical and civil distinction um, right from the beginning there. So uh, those are just three. But these are sphere, different spheres of authority, and, and this, um, this sphere of sovereignty means that there are different areas of government in our lives, as you pointed out. Yes, there's civil government, but there's family government, there's church government, there's the government of the vocations, um, and uh, various other forms of associations that, in, that govern our lives, uh, that um, uh, structure our lives. And so... The very bad habit that modern Christians have of talking about the government is almost always a reference to the state. Now, that's a totalitarian idea of political life, not a Christian idea. So there are multiple forms of government in human life and society of which civil government is just one. And that's the principle of sphere sovereignty. And that's where your diagnosis is is just so spot on because it's like, well, when we think of like government is not like the like definite article, the government, like this is the government. We have governments in, you know, ruling um, over each sphere. There's a certain order, you know, structure and direction, if you will, for each of these different sort of spheres. Mm -hmm. But it just for some reason, government thinks 
maybe it's good intention. Maybe it's demonic. I don't know. But but the government gets like, you know, tentacles and they just want to get their hands everywhere. And it's almost like their their de facto, de facto MO is like everything else must decrease and we must increase. And as we increase and legislate optimal living, optimal flourishing as they believe it to be, that actually doesn't seem so bad, right? It doesn't seem so bad that the government, the government, you know, is is doing supposedly the best they can to do what, um, from the context of supposed neutrality is doing the best they can to make life a little more awesome. Now, having said that, you, in that podcast that you, that, that I mentioned earlier called Climate COVID CRT with critical race theory and the new counter-reformation, and there, this is some, this, you mentioned, the way you said it was so good and, and d- disgusting, actually, you said the cult of climate COVID CRT, and we get add a bunch of stuff now, right? Like LGB, um, it's a product of counter-reformation. And then you mentioned that in, in that program, success involves zero carbon, zero COVID, COVID, zero intolerance, and you say they are impossible utopian goals. And so this all gives justification for the state to have ultimate reach and authority power to get us to the plate of place of ultimate simplicity, total oneness and unity, which is just like that Kuiper quote, like said mm-hmm. earlier. So can you speak to, regardless if their motives are um, good intentioned or demonic, the fact is government's trying to get everywhere and this utopia sort of exists, but you're saying it's just, it's a, it's a vapor. Yeah. This is the theme that I deal with, as you know, in ruler of Kings and, and develop this as the, the sort of logical alternative perspective to Christianity. And the reason why utopian delusions have been so popular from the time of Plato and Aristotle, uh, you know, right through to, you know, Thomas More, who coined the term utopia for his book, Utopia, a kind of communist manifesto, um, through to the likes of Karl Marx, and then on into the progressive utopianism of today, is that um, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, in the kingship of Christ, and in the providence of God, the ordering of God in history, then you are going to transfer the power and sovereignty of God and and it, uh, pro- providence, his providence in history, to um, an- another divinity concept. You're going to transfer yeah. those. Those concepts don't disappear when they're denied to God. They're merely transferred to man. And the the, the most powerful thing in the world, as I think as um, uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, if uh, if um, if a man uh, doesn't um, worship God, he's going to worship the world. And above all, he'll worship the strongest thing in the world. And so basically the state begins to arrogate to itself the attributes of God uh, and claim those for itself. So whereas in scripture, Christ's authority and sovereignty is absolute and the totalizing, the only totalizing principle for society is the kingdom of God in all its diverse spheres, all of which submit to the Lord. in that conception of reality, there's no parts to whole relation with respect to any one institution. And what you've just described and what I talk about in Ruler of Kings is that when the state tries to arrogate to itself these attributes of God, 
the state becomes the totalizing institution and it starts to relate what we can call the organic concept of the state. It starts to view all the other aspects of society in relationship to itself as parts to whole. So the whole, the, the, and where absolute sovereignty, authority and law resides is with the man-god, the man enlarged in the state and everything else, the individual, the family, the church, societies, associations, ec economics, everything else, these are merely lesser parts of the polis of the state to be controlled and planned. And the reason they need to be planned is because without the so of God and the sovereignty of God, then like the pagans believe, we live in a chaotic universe with capricious forces everywhere threatening to crush us. The climate's threatening to crush us. Viruses are threatening to destroy us. Everything's threatening to destroy us. And that requires philosopher kings, an elite, yeah. uh, a self-anointed elite who have the right uh, uh, and believe they have the right to guide and shape and predestine all of society. Mm -hmm. So we start to see society as a form of experiment, a social experiment. Uh, and the first thing you need for a valid experiment is controlled conditions. Mm -hmm. So the, the state political life starts to control more and more and more of these different areas of life in order to save you from yourself, save you from your silly individualism, your stupid ideas of liberty, your foolish ideas of the rule of law, your ridiculous notions of patriotism, and save you from yourself um, and your um, infancy of liberty and um, independence Mm -hmm. and uh, redeem you into the collective. Um, an illustration that I use in the in the book for the Star Trek fans out there is the Borg, um, which in <clears throat> a sort of semi-cybernetic race that uh, um, absorbs and assimilates other races. And this is what the state basically does. It starts to assimilate all these other areas of life till it has a sense that it believes it has a kind of totalizing control. And if it has control, it thinks it can save you. It's a, it's the messianic state. It, it becomes essentially redemptive. It, it will provide you cradle-to-grave security. And when there's a virus, it will shut you up in your house and pay you anyway. Um, it will, it will lock you down and save you. Uh, it will deny you your basic rights for your own good. Uh, etc. 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 And, and of course, you know, the last two or three years, we've just seen the mask torn off. The modern conception of the state, which is really just the old pagan uh, vision of the state, uh, slightly rebranded in scientific technocratic terms. Oh, my gosh. So so what you just said is it's on the one hand, it's so it's really great to hear a diagnose so clearly like that. But on the other hand, it's it's extremely disturbing. Like you 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 sort of framed what everyone's thinking, but well, we're so we get so brainwashed, you know. So mm -hmm. having said that, what what is the one-liner diagnosis I I could apply to things when I if it doesn't seem right to me? Am I thinking okay, they're trying to force the utopianism here? Like, what's the one-liner thing? And then what is what's the uh, based upon that one-liner grid, if you will, or, or the way to view it? Not even what should I do about it yet? Like, how can I change it? But just how should I let it sink in my brain? And, and what should I, where should I take that? If I see that happening, does that make sense? 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think the one-liner um, is. Um, uh, I think I think the one-liner is going to be um, that really just going back right back to Augustine. It's the city of God. It's the civitas day, or it's the civitas vandi. It's the city of man. What we're seeing is um, basically that you said it earlier. Really, the, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. I mean that when we really boil it down, with amidst all the sophistication of the different um, articulations of utopian thought and progressive ideas and, and Marxist thought and so on. Um, uh, and all the apparent complexity of all of that, it really does boil down to something pretty simple. Uh, it's Christ as Savior and Lord, or the state as Savior and Lord. It's the kingdom of man, it's the Tower of Babel, or it's the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And um, one provides for freedom and liberty, the other needs to eliminate and remove freedom and history, uh, freedom and liberty, because history becomes the ultimate place of final judgment. There is no final judgment from God, so history becomes the the place of judgment. So I would just encourage people to think in terms of that very simple. That Jesus said it: "If you're not for me, you're against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad." Yeah. Um, the only two kingdoms that the Bible recognizes um, are the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And what we're seeing is the lo- the 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 logic, the logical consistency of the two positions now are becoming clearer in our culture. Yeah. What does submission to God really look like to the Lord Jesus Christ? And what does apostasy and rebellion and the kingdom of man really look like? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I say it's self-conscious because once you get to the point, as Kuiper prophesied, as we said earlier, where we actually are denying the most fundamental creation, creational distinction uh in Revelation, um, in Genesis chapter one, the male-female distinction, well, every other distinction is a, a meaningful distinction evaporate. <laughs> right. Everything then can be denied. Um, yeah. And of course, that denial of the male-female um, has nothing to do with um, uh, uh, protecting people or caring for people and so on, and has everything to do with the demonic desire to utterly destroy God's order. God's norms for creation for an anti-normative world if you because man cannot strike directly at God and tear God out of the heavens he strikes at his image bearer and he tries to destroy God's image uh, who is meant to represent God in the earth man and that's what the the radical woke agenda is about today the destruction of God's image in creation and so we I don't think we have time to talk about um how to how to respond but at minimum we could pray the lord's kingdom come and just and view that holistic reality it's his kingdom on earth like in your town you know in your town in your county in your hamlet or whatever um we've been talking with dr joe boot the book is called ruler of kings toward a christian vision of government as we close out i think you might have one minute left am i right to use um a Christian's view on homosexuality as a litmus test for orthodoxy? Uh, Two things. Um, One, yes, I think you are. In the same way that we used to, maybe 40, 50 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus uh, was the litmus test with old liberalism. Um, The new test of genuine orthodox Christian faith is what do you believe about human identity 
um, with with men and women made in the image of God. As far as the the other, the other question that you mentioned, uh, when we look at the macro and the big, it feels overwhelming. It feels, as you said, it feels intimidating, too big for us. But the reality is, is that uh, the ocean is made up of many small drops, um, and there were only 120 people in the upper room in Acts chapter two. And they looked out at the great pagan Greco-Roman world, the pagan Colossus, and it must have seemed utterly impenetrable to 120 people who knew that Jesus was Lord, Savior and Messiah. And so we must never get discouraged when what we're seeing around us is uh, God judging an apostate culture. And when God judges something is because he's sweeping it aside to replace it with something else. And he's looking for a faithful people. And God always works with a stump, with a remnant. Yeah. And uh, with that remnant, he does great things and he transforms families, communities, towns, cities, provinces or states, and then nations. And uh, that's the way God works. And so it's always grassroots. It's ground up. It's wherever we are as Christians, as the body of Christ, living out the reality of the kingdom of God in the small ways and in the big ways, God's work moves forward sometimes even imperceptibly in history and it will culminate in christ having the supremacy in all things so don't be discouraged jesus christ is on the throne we came for salvation we came for family we came for all that's good that's how we'll walk away we came to break the bad we came to cheer the sad we came to leave.